We really focus on e-commerce resistant service-based tenants in these shopping centers. Most of them are going to be service-based. You can think of chiropractors, things like that, that you can't necessarily do online. And when you have them surrounded by a good customer base, that's going to be a good customer base for most of these retailers. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Surgeon Syndicate. Today, we are here with Logan Freeman. Logan is the head of acquisitions for FTW Investments. And prior to that, led acquisitions for another investment firm, also managing broker at Exchange CRE, a boutique commercial real estate brokerage firm specializing in 1031 transactions. And we can get into that a little bit more. But Logan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here and excited to talk about real estate and maybe some asset classes that are often overlooked and uh, hopefully have the opportunity to talk through investment thesis and today's ever-changing environment, right? It's always in 2023 has been quite the year. I could say that about 2022 and 2021 and 2020 as well, but we haven't seen this type of transaction decline in quite some time, at least this longer period of time. I mean, Hassan Naji is the CEO of Marcus and Millichap. They're down 50 or 60 percent. And he obviously is a New York City stock exchange traded company, publicly traded company. So his shareholders are definitely asking him, when does this turn around? And the short answer is nobody knows. Everybody wants to give their crystal ball opinion about it. But a few things fundamentally have to happen. And if you have read Howard Marks' work, his memos, his books, he's very big on investor psychology. And that plays a role here as well. But there are some fundamentals in regards to lending and the changing societal changes that we have in regards to usage of commercial real estate that are going to have an impact on the way that the market is going to perform over here the next 12 to 24 months. At the end of the day, I do believe that commercial real estate has pretty strong fundamentals outside of class B office. And we can talk about why, but I'm pretty strong on real estate in general right now. Making the deals work is the hard part at this point, but you can't stop doing the work that you're doing on the acquisition side because once you do, the prices are going to shoot back up pretty quick and you're going to be out of business on the acquisitions as well. So staying in the loop is extremely important as well. You touched on several awesome things right now. And so our listeners are mostly based in the Midwest. That's I'm in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so you're in right. Kansas City. So, so we got that similar viewpoint there. So what's the difference with the Midwest right now and everywhere else? Because a lot of the headlines tend to focus in higher headline markets. Yeah, I think it comes down to supply and demand. And so when the growth markets or the coastal gateway markets, investors have money and debt is cheap, they're going to put money in those markets. So they had a large supply of different asset classes coming online, which is obviously going to push down rental rates in some certain markets. Now, there's been obviously some societal changes in regards to COVID-19, the pandemic, people moving out of California and moving to Texas that maybe pushed that down, that can down the road just a little bit for Dallas-Fort Worth area and Austin, Texas. But what we are seeing now, at least in some of those markets, Phoenix, Arizona, Austin, Texas, 
is big supply coming online. Rental rates are not pushing up to the sky like they have been. And that's going to bring housing inflation down, but also is going to impact those projects. But in the Midwest, there are some markets that have been kind of the hotspots. And if you think about Oklahoma City, Des Moines, Iowa, Kansas City, Indianapolis, there's some places in Illinois as well that I think have been kind of shining stars in Omaha and Lincoln, Nebraska being on that list as well. They just didn't have a big supply. So that means the demand, if it's there, which it seemingly is because people can now work from home and live somewhere else and work in California or their company is in California and they can move to the Midwest and they're looking at the affordability of the Midwest and the living conditions. And they're saying, you know what? I think that we can go ahead and move and get that five bedroom house for $500,000 less or a million dollars less. I can get the top notch apartment unit brand new in the best location for $2,500 to $3,000 a month. And so you have to pair that against what it costs to buy a new home in any market. And then also the supply and demand that was there in those markets. And so supply is starting to trying to catch up in some of these Midwest markets, but affordability is still quite a bit higher than some of those gateway markets. So I think that's attracting a lot of people. The last thing I'll say about this is what makes America move? And it's the Midwest, it's logistics, it's farming, it's agriculture. It's all of those different things that kind of run through the Midwest. I believe that you can get to 80% of the United States from Kansas City in two days via truck. And so it's railroads, it's trucking, it's all of those different things that create jobs. And when you have a market where we're at right now, where the big tech companies, the big five, were on a big hiring spree and those jobs go away, Midwest companies are still hiring individuals and maybe for different jobs, but you can typically come to a Kansas City or somewhere in a Wisconsin and find a job that is a good job. And you're going to feel pretty comfortable that even if you get let go, there's going to be another job available for you. I can't say that in necessarily some of those tech driven industries and regions because venture capital technology, while AI is definitely changing the landscape for us, and data centers are a big component of that and artificial intelligence. But at the same time, they do have big pullbacks. And if you look at the layoff data, it's really highly sectored into the technology industries. And so those folks are like, well, if I got laid off, I can go move to a more affordable market, get a different job because the Midwest needs software engineers. Hello. Yeah. I mean, we're called the Silicon Prairie for a reason. There is a huh. decent amount of technology going on here in the Midwest. And so they can move to a more affordable market. They can get a great job because it's in demand. Their services are in their technology experience and expertise is in demand, which is booming for the Midwest. And so if you look at most of the leaders year over year rent growth for apartment communities, retail availability, uh, industrial, it's really, really low here in Kansas City on the availability, but on the rent growth anywhere from five to 12% year over year. And that's today. In most of those gateway markets, we're seeing pullbacks and negative rent growth. So I think all of those things combined create kind of a perfect storm for at least the period of time now, which investors typically, we get called the flyover states a lot. And I mean, rightfully so, right? If you're going from New York City to California, understandably, but there's been a lot of big strides that have been made in some of these cities, Kansas City being one of those that is attracting a lot of outside capital. And people really come here and say, oh my gosh, I had no idea that Kansas City was like this. We thought it was just some prairie town in Kansas. It's actually in Missouri. And yes, that's the first distinction is like, yeah, you know, I know you guys are over in Kansas. It's like, actually, Kansas City is much larger on the Missouri side than it is on the Kansas side. 
But that's creating a lot of opportunities and people are starting to see that. And we're starting to see larger groups kind of move into Kansas City and start putting down roots. So in looking at the effects on, because we like to focus here on some of the other asset classes besides multifamily, because there's a lot out there about that. What's the impact this is having on the other asset classes like retail and warehouse and flex space? Yeah, I'll go back to the construction pipelines over the last 10 years, which have been pretty non-existent for both of those asset classes. Industrial, however, in at least Kansas City, we have some really large, we have, I think, the top or one of the largest industrial developers based out of Kansas City. At one point in 2021, they were delivering a new building per day. That's unbelievable, right? So we do have a lot of the big box warehouse space that has been developed here. But where the demand really is, it goes back to those companies that are onshoring back into the United States that don't need 500,000 square feet. They maybe need the 75 to 100,000 square feet that has a little bit of office component mixed in there as well. So that'd be kind of the flex industrial space, which is what we own and operate and what we really like to purchase. But that has not been developed over the last 10 years. So we're seeing developers start to reposition their new projects into more of the flex subdivided spaces because the big Amazons and of the world are not moving into those spaces anymore. But that's going to take time for that to shift over. So any flex industrial space that you have in a good logistical corridor with highway access is in high demand here in Kansas City. On the retail side, easily you can look at the construction pipeline and say, okay, well, the e-commerce boom, and everyone believes that the e-commerce world was going to just terrorize brick and mortar sales. I'll throw a stat out there. 86% of all retail sales still happen in brick and mortar stores. And so web penetration peaked during COVID-19 when you couldn't go to retail stores necessarily, unless they were essential businesses, peaked around 16 or 17%. And so retail still supports one in four American jobs, and it's a $6.1 trillion industry. So it's a really large industry, and that product hasn't been developed. What, what has been developed? Well, multifamily around those neighborhoods. And so you have a little bit of nimbyism going on because if you have a nice subdivision, they don't necessarily want multifamily going around. And those retail centers were probably built in 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe the early 2000s if you have a new one. But looking for good space around good subdivisions and where people are living is tough. So you have a land availability crisis going on for new retail. Well, what is that doing? Well, that's really for neighborhood centers specifically is creating a lot of demand for those spaces. We're also seeing large box retailers start to look at retail centers. So maybe a junior box space or a large box space that had 50 to 100,000 square feet, they're looking at smaller footprints, anywhere from 10 to 15,000 square feet, and sometimes down to 7,500 square feet, and having more of a online presence, but also in-store presence. So they're kind of looking at this omni-channel kind of type of customer experience for individuals and downsizing and going into these smaller shopping centers. One good example would be like Ulta. For example, I think Ulta is actually inside of Kohl's now. So if you go to a Kohl's, you walk in, there's actually an Ulta inside and it's in a section of that, right? So they're testing, retailers are testing out these new concepts, which is also great for neighborhood retail centers because you can get a national credit tenant that's going to bring more traffic, hopefully to the shopping center. But retail centers, specifically neighborhood centers, have performed extremely well over COVID during the COVID-19 pandemic and now are starting to become the darling of the commercial real estate industry. When I start to see the Wall Street Journal write articles about the neighborhood retail shopping center asset class, it's like, okay, well, I've been shouting from the rooftops for about two years about this asset class. They're now catching on. So they're just a little bit behind, but obviously they want to 
validate their information and their data. And that's starting to come out and that's starting to get investors interested in retail. And we have a long track record with understanding what types of centers are doing well versus ones that are not. And the ones that are struggling are the ones that are not going to have a great online presence and or it's a goods base that you can buy that product on Amazon. So we really focus on e-commerce resistant service-based tenants in these shopping centers. So they're typically 25 to 50,000 square feet with anywhere from 10 to 20 different local, regional, and national credit tenant mix. But most of them are going to be service-based. You can think of chiropractors, restaurants, dentist offices. We have financial services. We have banks. We have hairdressers, things like that, that you can't necessarily do online that are moving into these shopping centers. And when you have them surrounded by a good customer base, usually, typically, we're looking at median household income above 75,000 with traffic counts on the cars per day, around 15 to 25,000 cars per day. That's going to be a good customer base for most of these retailers that they're looking to be around. So they're very difficult to find because if they are performing well and they're professionally owned and managed, they're not usually selling. However, there's still a decent amount of unsophisticated ownership groups. I think 86, 87% of all neighborhood retail shopping centers are still owned by mom and pop operators. So that's a big opportunity for individuals that have the operations and the know-how on how to redevelop these things. Well, so when you look at the neighborhood retail center versus the big malls, and we thought the malls, everybody said the malls were dying. And now it seems like the malls are making a comeback. I saw a headline yesterday that said Gen Z likes going to the mall and finding everything in one place, which is like a flashback to the 80s. Yeah. So what we're seeing on the mall side of things, they're transforming. So you'll see big regional malls that have done well, some in here in Kansas City, Oak Park Mall being one of them, where they'll get a national retailer instead of having to go inside of the mall to get there, you can actually pull up. And they have their, it almost looks like a standalone spot where they're going to get their traffic. They're going to have a nice visibility. You can pull up and go right in. And then that hopefully gets them going to the other areas in the mall. But what has challenged a lot of malls is when they have four or five large tenants occupying spaces, those tenants said, hey, traffic counts are, and the visitors, visitor count is down substantially for these malls for a multitude of reasons, right? Some retailers that are saying, hey, we're moving our strategy to standalone shopping centers and or our own boxes. And so we don't really necessarily want to be around other individuals, more highly affluent areas as well. And so you have this tenant mix in there that just didn't really bring the clientele that these national retailers were looking for. And so uh, we've also seen some of these malls redeveloped into medical usages. So you might have a Barnes and Noble on the other side of the mall, you may have an urgent care. And on top of that, you may have a medical office tenant inside of that mall. So if you can restructure it and figure out how to revitalize that mall and attract those right tenant mix, you're probably going to do okay. But the location still is really, really important. And a lot of these malls are kind of on the outskirts of town necessarily that a lot of folks don't really necessarily want to be around. So it's a mixed bag. We've had some failures on the mall side here in the Midwest in Kansas City, but there are some shining stars that are doing really well. But it takes a lot of work from the ownership group to understand the consumer and what they're looking for, for them to thrive. But yes, I think that generally speaking, people are out and about and they're shopping and the mall gives them something to do. And if it can be focused on the family as well, which the one here that in Kansas City is thriving, you walk in, I mean, there's a, not a Ferris wheel, but you know, you get on the animal and you go around about, I can't remember what that thing is called, but like it gives families something to do, right? And that's going to create more traffic for the resident or for the different tenants that are in those buildings. 
It's interesting, all the discussion that Amazon was going to kill retail. And I've heard my teenagers say recently that they don't want to shop for clothes online Mm -hmm. because they spend their whole day online in school and they want to go out with their friends and go out and try things on. And so they're actually starting to push back, feels like push back a little bit against online retail. Yeah. I mean, I think that the data speaks for itself on that one. I mean, people shop in brick and mortar stores and they shop online. It kind of depends on what they're looking for. But both of those statements are true. But I think that top retailers are investing to make their shopping experience truly universal, whether they prefer in-person or online shopping. And so I think that stat I saw the other day was pretty interesting, but 80% of the companies are investing in omni-channel shopping experiences now. And so I think it's a holistic experience that people have to think about and these companies are really focused on. Driving traffic and awareness online is great. If you can find it online, that's fantastic. But a lot of times folks still like to maybe go into the store and see if they can find a deal. And that's another thing that has been on everybody's mind as inflation has been extremely high and people are more price conscientious is think about buying something online, right? So Amazon has to rent a warehouse. They have to have people, they have to have robots, move the boxes, package the boxes, and they have to have people drive those boxes to your houses. That's gonna drive the price up for a good. And if you can just drive in and pick it up from a discount store or find a clearance section, you might be able to find that same product for 50, 60% less cost in the stores. And so that's another factor I think that people really saw sales go up in brick and mortar sales because For the first time in 2021 ever, brick and mortar sales actually outpaced e-commerce growth. And so that was a telling thing, but I do think that was a result of people just wanting to get out of the house for sure. We talked about malls and neighborhood retail, and it sounds like the neighborhood retail is really the place that's doing the best right now. If somebody's looking at investing there though, then maybe that cat's out of the bag or are there still opportunities there? There's still opportunities there because the fragmentation of this space is very large. And what I mean by that is the ability to underwrite and understand a multifamily deal in Kansas City versus Green Bay versus St. Louis versus Des Moines, Iowa is pretty easy to do. I mean, if you have the right experience in technology and data. However, when you start talking about retail, you really need to know the area and where are the developments happening around and where do people actually go and what is the location like and how is the crime around that area? And so what are the traffic counts? And so it makes it very difficult for people that aren't in the markets that they're looking to purchase these assets and to be successful without a really good commercial real estate broker if they're looking to purchase something themselves. From an investor standpoint, I think that having uh, local relationships and boots on the ground when investing with retail operators is extremely important because the property management and the leasing of these types of centers is extremely valuable to the business plan implementation. And so there's not just a property manager that you can just put on and say, yeah, yeah, go do it. You're really involved on the ownership side from the CapEx plan, from moving gross or modified gross leases over to triple net leases. And that all takes a plan, a vision, and you have to communicate that to the tenants that are in the building to get buy-in for them to say, yep, I have a great customer base here. If you guys come in and do the parking lot, the signage, the roof, the facade, landscaping, lighting, sign bands, and make this this property nicer, then I will buy into moving from a gross lease to a triple net lease, pay my portion of that because it's going to overall create more revenue for my business. But to do that, you have to have a plan, a vision, and you have to show a track record of, hey, you can actually do that. And so I think all of those factors are really important for individuals, which weeds out, which makes the barrier of entry 
higher for individuals that want to get into this asset class than maybe just underwriting a 50 unit apartment complex, right? Because there's all the courses, there's everything about that, but show me one mastermind, one course, one place that you can go to learn how to negotiate with a business owner uh, who's been in a building for 25 years at certain rate to move them to a triple net lease rate and or how are we going to drive traffic to this elbow space in this shopping center? What type of tenants are actually in the market looking for new spaces? All of those things are extremely important to having these things be successful. And so that creates a higher barrier of entry for individuals. So if you can showcase the fact that you've done this before, you've sold and bought these shopping centers before, and you have a team in place that knows what they're doing, I think it's a really compelling offering for investors, not just from a diversification standpoint, but also from an ease standpoint. And I mean this because we also own and operate 1500 multifamily units. So I get to see both sides of it. And I've been on meetings on the management side for both of those different asset classes. And for example, we own a 215,000 square foot industrial building with five or six tenants. We also own an apartment complex that has 255 units in it. And I can tell you which one is easier to manage on a day-to-day basis. It's definitely not the multifamily one because of the amount of people you have to deal with, but also the lease structures that are in place and the negotiation that you have with business owners versus having to deal with evictions and weekly turnovers on make readies and things like that for the multifamily portfolio. So I don't think it's saturated yet. The word has gotten out a little bit, but I hope that helps on the education side. But there still is a skill set and an experience level that not many people have compared to, I think, the multifamily sector. That's awesome. All right. So this has been so awesome. And we're going to wrap up this portion of the episode. And then please come back and join us for the second half of our conversation with Logan Freeman. Look forward to seeing you there. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better. So I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.